Hey folks, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Embellish Podcast. It's a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, geek, casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, you're sure to waste a few minutes listening to what I have to say and I hope you find it interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit subscribe button. I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists, and if you can't find me on the platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube on Wednesday nights around 9.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website at www.embellishpod.com that is also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and even some one-off tasting notes. Today is Wednesday, December the 1st, and we are talking about a travelogue, or North Carolina, and we're on episode 32. If you don't notice, or if you haven't been here before, uh, you may not have ever seen my normal setup, but what you will notice is that uh, I'm, I'm not at home, obviously. Um, I've been, I'll be traveling for work probably at least once a month for the next six or seven months for sure. Um, and so I, I decided I was going to try to put together a travel rig and see if I can make this work uh, with hotel Wi-Fi, with you know anything else that might be going on. And so I picked up a um, a blue snowball microphone for like forty or fifty bucks. They're like a, an a- Amazon special for um, the old USB style ones that don't have a whole lot of frills to it. I've got my normal webcam that I brought with me, and there's a small little chargeable light. Adds a little bit of weight to myself whenever I travel, but, you know, hey, it's worth a shot, and we'll see what we've got going on. Um, while I'm here, I've got a series of marathon meetings, so this episode will probably be pretty close, pretty short. I've got some early meetings tomorrow morning. A little bit tired. You know, it's 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 been one of those weeks. Um, other stuff. Uh, Repeal Day Expo is coming up on Saturday. Uh, you don't have tickets. They may still be available if you um, aren't planning on going. You can potentially expect for a recap next week. I can talk about the things that happened there. Um, if, you, if you're not familiar, Repeal Day Expo is um, an online symposium, uh, so to speak, that uh, Fred Minnick is putting on. Um, it's going to be this coming Saturday. Um, they'll have you know a series of different speakers, events going on, potential private tastings, um, got a couple of folks that I, I, you know, one I call a friend, one one that I follow pretty closely. Um, Jack from Hood Sommelier will be um, hosting something, and then Matt Porter from ADHD Whiskey. Um, he he's got a he's got a thing going on as well, and um, those are the primary reasons why I did it. I you know I, I attended last year. I was unsure if I would do this year again or not, but um, you know I thought hey we'll we'll do it again, and so we'll see what that looks like on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, if you joined me last week. Uh, on the live, uh, you may have noticed that I had some audio problems. I was trying out a Streamlabs OBS um, plug-in integration thing, whatever, just to kind of see what that's like and if it's something that I can use going forward. And for about five or seven minutes, we had no audio, and thankfully I had a couple of folks that joined me and were able to um, tell me through the YouTube chat that there was no audio. Um, if you are here... Um, and you don't hear me, please let me know. I think I got it resolved. I f- can see the the audio meter bouncing. Uh, I think I've got everything set up the way it should. 
you know, and, and if you get any background noise, I apologize. I'm in one of those hotels where the air conditioner just doesn't turn off. It's not putting out cold or hot air. It's just continually blowing. Um, and then back to the episode title. The episode title is um, a travel log, a North Carolina episode. So I am currently in North Carolina. And I thought, you know, as I'm traveling, it might be interesting to try to pick up and, and look at some local history regarding whiskey. Maybe find a, a couple of unique bottles in the in the town that I'm in or or from whatever. And so North Carolina made it a good place to kind of start. And we've talked about the foundations of whiskey on this particular podcast a number of times. Um, talked about where it started. And um, it makes sense to, to talk about a state like North Carolina that's going to be one of the very early uh, settled colonies um, where you know the foundations of whiskey sort of began. Um, within North Carolina, um, whiskey has been a huge part of its commerce and culture uh, since European settlement. And you know most of the folks that were coming over here, obviously immigrants, they weren't making what we know to be corn whiskey at that point in time. Um, the, their familiarity, you know, the, the idea of whiskey or the idea of corn in Europe did not exist until Columbus took it back to them. Um, and so as, as distillation goes, they understood how to mash um, malted barley and create a whiskey from it. So likely as settlers came into the United States, the whiskeys that they were creating were going to be based off of malted barley or potentially even rye. And that's one of the one of the things I talked about is that, you know, the the original spirits of the United States of America, we like to claim bourbon as our as our native spirit and that has a lot to do with corn being uh, more of an uh, an indigenous crop to the United States that was taken to other places. Um, of course, we obviously stole that from Central American countries as it migrated north. I think it, you know, corn migrated as as far north as you know southern Maine. Um, but the first whiskeys that were make made here were largely going to be rye and uh, malted barley, you know, a, a single malt type whiskeys. So, you know, if we talk about the native spirit, it's probably bourbon. But if we talk about the first spirit, it's probably one of these things. Um, Obviously, uh, at some point in time, you know, settlers were introduced to corn as a crop. Um, Native Americans, indigenous peoples, American Indians, wh whatever the, the appropriate term is um, today, uh, were able to introduce settlers to corn. And it became, you know, a staple of, uh, of their sustenance and a staple of, eventually a staple of local whiskey makers. Um, You'll find a lot, at least in North Carolina, you'll find a lot of of apple-based alcohols, um, apple ciders, apple brandies, um, and, and and a lot of the original stills were geared towards that as well. You know, there's there's a there's a huge culture of apple growing, um, but the concept of alcohol consumption has been pretty pervasive in the culture of North Carolina, um, probably since the 1600s. Um, you know, taverns were gathering places, towns grew around these crossroads establishments, and, uh, you know, they, they were pretty big deals. The idea of corn whiskey um, came out of, you know, some of the same things that we've talked about before in, in other episodes is that um, it, it's an easier commodity to carry to crossroads, to trains, over mountains. You know, there are mountains here, so carrying... Um, the equivalent of 
you know, an acre's worth of corn in a small bottle or in a, you know, a you know, hundred acres worth of corn in a barrel, uh, is, is a commodity that's, that's easier to sell. And it's also got a longer, sh- you know, shelf life to it. But, you know, the, the, the history of whiskey in, in North Carolina is, or at least alcohol in general, is somewhat tumultuous. It, um, the, the attempts at prohibition of alcoholic beverages in the state of North Carolina, um, came as early as the mid 1800s and so if you think about you know prohibition that comes around in the early 1900s were you know 50 years before that um but it, it it didn't get a whole lot of attention or traction because it was a major commodity for producers in western north carolina specifically they uh you know the, the farmers latched onto corn and corn whiskey because of you know what i was talking about that there's not adequate roads there's not adequate train service you had to find a way to be able to carry large quantities of your crop and be able to sell it. Um, one of the big, specifically in western uh, North Carolina, one of the big locations uh, for the modifying of, of whiskey is going to be Statesville. Uh, Statesville was effectively the end of the line for train services for to the west for some time. And so if you really think about the shape of the United States now, it's kind of unique to think, that western north carolina was considered the west at a certain point in time that was as far west as trains went and being the end of the line if you're farther out reaching than that makes a good place to sort of bring those things back into uh, a train location so they could make their way back east and north to be able to um, sell to the rest of the united states um there were some you know major wholesale liquor houses being established in statesville and there was a high degree of prosperity until the early 1900s when um, statewide prohibition hits. Uh, you know, we're familiar with state with with national prohibition, which is in 1920. But uh, North Carolina decided to try to be sort of an overachiever in this realm, and they um, they sought out statewide prohibition in 1909. Um, they they a full 11 years before the rest of the United States. Um, legal whiskey was able to return, obviously, uh, after national prohibition ended. Um, and by the, you know, the, the, I think the 21st, 21st amendment hit in 1933. Um, however, within North Carolina, you know, they started early and they finished late. And so they ran, you know, a lot of areas were dry until 1935. And if they're anything like the state of Kentucky, you know, we had dry counties up until the mid two thousands, places where you could not purchase, you know, prohibition still was effectively in place. Not to the point to where if alcohol was found, it was going to be destroyed, but the sale um, and consumption in public places of alcohol was prohibited specifically in the county that I grew up in until 2001 or so. Um, so uh, since since Prohibition, there's not been any significant, what we would consider commercial distilleries established in this state. Uh, a place that might have been the westernmost frontier with a high degree of whiskey uh, creation and uh, bottling and sales has has largely not recovered from statewide nationwide prohibition uh, one of the other things that is is unique about the state of North Carolina and if you're not in a state like this uh, there may be some education here for you you are from a state like North Carolina um, you, you you'll probably have some degree of Opinion on this, 
But North Carolina is what's considered a state control um, alcohol location. Um, the Alcohol Beverage Control Commission uh, actually owns the stores in the state. And, you know, as, as prohibition ended and as, you know, states try to figure out ways to make money, uh, you know, think about some of the, the, the movies that were made about. Uh, prohibition era and people creating whiskey and moonshiners running it and trying to avoid taxes and um you had the the revenueers the revenueers were chasing these folks down trying to to stop them from producing something and not being able to collect it um some states opened the doors back open and just said hey let's throw a tax on it and we'll move on with life and then other states decided they were going to control what uh, individual retail retailers could do or even own the liquor stores themselves um the the states, most states, were really happy to see government, or at least the federal government, step away from the liquor business and give it back to the private sector. You know, we've we've got a nation that is founded on the ideals of capitalism, and the government's interference into a free market economy um, is a problem for some folks. But uh, in other states, the, the those states decided, you know, that we're we're going to have a free free ish market economy. But we're going to control these environments. We're going to control volumes. We're going to control prices. We're going to do a, a number of things. Um, so there's there's a couple of types of state control locations. Um, some are what are considered sole wholesalers. And then there are those that o operate the actual liquor stores themselves. Um, and, and that's what North Carolina happens to be. And this seems to be the minority of, of what a state control does. Um, state-run liquor stores technically generate income for the state. Money that's put towards you know education or infrastructure or um, any other thing that needs to exist. Um, and they can also dictate where you can buy booze, and they they can control the number of liquor stores uh, and pricing as well. Uh, one of the things in being in a non-state control location, um, you see distinct variation. In Kentucky, you see distinct variation in prices as you move farther away from the bourbon mecca. Now, if you look in Louisville and Lexington, you'll find uh, certain bottles that travel all the way to the far western reaches of the state are easily 10 to $12 more per bottle just based off their geography. Whereas in a state control location, those prices are going to be the same across the state itself. Um, they're also going to have more controls in place for allocated bottle releases for um, the harder-to-find items, and you're potentially going to have access to um, finding finding bottles you're looking for online, whereas you might not be able to buy them online. You'll actually be able to locate and say, oh, this store has this particular bottle that I'm, that I'm after. Um, visiting liquor stores in North Carolina, I find the selection is significantly different than what you would see in you know Kentucky or Tennessee or um, Mississippi, Indiana, uh, a host of other states that I've been to. You know, there's a pretty wide selection. Whereas in a state control uh, location, they're not going to carry significant quantities of in inventory because um, they want to keep what's going to sell and not let things sit on the shelf for a long period of time. Um, Owning the liquor stores also allows the states to control when you can buy alcohol. Um, there are blue laws. There are you know things that 
allow the st- this is going to allow the state to restrict the sale of alcohol on a Sunday or the restrict the sale of alcohol during elections or you can only have limited hours on Sundays or any other dictation on how they should react to federal holidays to state holidays to to whatever those things happen to be um, it's always been confusing to me that you know, uh, for for alcohol, I understand that religion and alcohol largely don't mix in a lot of avenues. But um, saying I cannot purchase a bottle of whiskey on Sunday just means that I need to buy two on Saturday. Well, what is really being achieved by saying you can't purchase something on Sunday? Is that going to prevent me from attending a, a religious service, or is it just some asinine rule that sort of exists? But we won't spend too much more time talking about state control locations or um, even necessarily the history. One of the things that I like to do when I travel is I like to try to find um, some local or some state-only available items, some craft distilleries, whatever happens to exist out there. And so I started poking around before I left, you know, like I would do looking for a restaurant and trying to find, you know, what, what distilleries are in the state of North Carolina that I didn't already know. You know, I have, I have a pretty large uh, knowledge base on what liquor stores are in our liquor stores what what distillers are in Kentucky some that are most that are in Indiana uh, quite a few in Tennessee understanding some degree Illinois and Missouri but I'd never really thought about North Carolina largely um, and what I found are, are a couple of things the number one there's the Great Wagon Road Distiller Distilling Company um, and I, they they make the the Rua, which is uh, an uh, American single malt that I actually have, and I'm saving for a later episode that we're going to talk about American single malts. And then I came across specifically in the city that I'm visiting. I'm in Greensboro, North North Carolina, right now. They have a distillery um, here. It's Greenbo, Green Greensboro Distilling Company, but they make uh, they're they're going by Fainting Goat, and more specifically, the the bottles that I was able to pick up are called Fishers. I have a Fisher Small Batch Rye. And a Fisher Small Batch American Single Malt. Um, they they do bourbons, but the bourbons are more limited. They're going to be distillery only releases, and so I decided you know I'll pick a couple of these up. Luckily, I have a you know, I, I flew in, but I luckily I have a coworker that will be <clears throat> driving back to Kentucky, so I can send these bottles back with them and pick them up whenever I get home. <clears throat> Sorry, um, and I, and I'll read you a little bit from um, the. Fainting Goat website or Greensboro Distilling's website. Give you a little idea of what they've got going on. And the downside to talking about stuff like this is this, this is only available in North Carolina. North Carolina does not allow shipping um, to other states. But as the, as the product that is created here grows in popularity, likely they will seek out dis- distribution elsewhere. Uh, and as I was uh, purchasing these bottles at the at the ABC store here in town, um, the the lady behind the counter, I, you know, I didn't ask for any advice. I sort of knew what I wanted when I walked in the door. Um, I, you know, I walked up to the counter and laid them out there, and her immediate reaction was, "Hey, these are two really good selections that you've made." Um, you know, and and they had a whole wall of local or statewide type distilleries, um, and some with a higher degree of notoriety. Um, but the the bottle looks great. The the product I, I believe is going to be good. I would be drinking it tonight, but I've got a super early morning tomorrow morning, um, and I've had a series of really long meetings. It's been you know 
10, 12 hours worth of meetings a day plus an hour and a half long you know working dinner um it, it can kind of wear on you and i've got a full day of it again tomorrow with a, a longer thing so uh, bill norman the master distiller at uh, greensboro distilling he attended the culinary institute of america and that's the thing that i find really interesting because um i'm super into cooking and 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 making food and so i read this and i immediately know what the culinary institute of america is and and what that means um but he trained in the art of french cuisine and uh, that's a unique place for a master distiller to come from because usually they're going to come from the spirits industry they're going to come from some other um some other type of business that has nothing to do with whiskey and they decided this is their you know later in life passion but um, he's using his expert knowledge and his refined palate to, to try to create some distinct flavor profiles that are going to be identified with some local flavors, flavor, local flavor profiles. Um, and and then he, he brings in his son, Andrew Norman, who's a master blender. Um, and this Andrew is marked as a true aficionado of liquor. And he wants to to try to taste every liquor that he can find, craft distilleries, larger distilling companies, domestic, foreign, whatever um, it takes to build a large repertoire of of tasting notes and profiles and things that he understands um, to try to to try to make a better whiskey. Um, and then there is the co-owner of Greensboro Distilling Company is uh, Shelley Johnson Norman. And Shelly Johnson Norman, a uh, small business expert with a thirst for travel and new experiences. So what you're seeing here is, is this is not a brand that creates a significant backlog story, has ties into a lot of different things. Um, they're, they're interested in unique flavors and unique uh, palates, creating great tasting spirits and creating an experience. Um, I was able to talk to a few people who have been... Uh, down in the area where the distillery is and tried to spend some time down there and you know they're they're creating a great experience they're they're not worried so much about history they were worried about writing their future um and then the 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 last person to sort of toft into the mix here is leslie norman hobbs and this is a southern bell and a businesswoman extraordinaire um this this feigning goat spirits company greensboro distilling company if you haven't noticed they all have the same last name and you know they they come from unique unique um backgrounds and 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 they found a path towards whiskey that is probably will be considered non-traditional but they have all also gone the extra mile to receive certification from the mile high craft distilling teaching communities in uh, louisville's moonshine university um, they're, they're, there's a passion for flavors plus their education plus their need to create something that is genuine and unique to this particular area because um, like I said there's not any major commercial distilleries in the state that are carrying any real notoriety for at least whiskey specifically uh, there's a huge craft beer um, culture here there's a huge um, apple cider and apple uh, brandy uh, culture here, uh, just based off of geography, based off of the crop mix that happens to exist here, um, all of those different things. 
it's it, it, it's pretty pervasive in what they're what it is. But they're trying to kind of carve out them them and, and, and companies like Great Wagon Road Distilling are trying to carve out a name for North Carolina whiskey um, in the American ecosystem and, and, and what that means. And and those are the things like those are the stories that that I want to explore. Those are the the people that I want to visit and I want to try to. Um, carry home bits and pieces of what it is that they're trying to do because um, these things from from people like this these things are, are what I would consider artistic expressions um, they're they have a flavor profile they're chasing they have a dream that they're chasing they have an idea that they're chasing and that's what ends up in the bottle they they create a they create an offering we pick it up on the shelf it may be great it may be good it may be terrible but at the end of the day, there's a lot of you know blood, sweat, and tears that goes into this. There's a lot of thought, there's a lot of process, and there's a lot of, of money tied up in these things. Um, so you know this is this is what I'm probably going to try to do with some of these travel logs. As I, I find locations, we'll try to find a place where I can set a camera up in a corner, uh, grab my microphone, and and talk about a few things. Um, kind of point out some 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 distilleries that. The only way you're going to find them is by being in that state, and so you may not make it to this particular portion of the, the you know, the the the, the, the I think it's the Golden Triangle of North Carolina, um, where this distillery is. But I would suppose that if you stepped into an ABC store in North Carolina, there's a good chance you could find this, and it might be an opportunity to bring this home, give it a taste, see what it's about, um, and, and become a fan or not. Not you know, not entirely sure. So, um. I think I'm going to wrap it there. We're at about 26 minutes, which is a little shorter than what I normally do. But like I said, this is a, a travel episode. I don't have a whole lot um, to talk about. It's been sort of an exhausting week. Uh, thanks for joining me tonight or today or whenever you happen to catch this particular episode. I uh, hope you found this entertaining. I uh, hope you found it informative. Um, if you did, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have that you're going to be consuming this on. Leave a comment if you're on YouTube. I will guarantee you that you will get a response to it. Uh, hopefully, put you know within just a few minutes, uh, as long as it's not while I'm in the middle of a meeting. Um, if you want to hit me up on social media, Twitter or Instagram, um, you know, Embellish Pod is is where I am. You can find me. You can follow me. You can see what's going on. You can hop on YouTube and be a part of whenever I'm actually recording these episodes. You can. Join me. You can get in and live chat. I've had you know folks that have joined me a number of times, and um, I do want to call out that's uh, I've had some some growth in the last week, and, and a lot of that has to do with people uh, that have been joining me. The the guys over at Chill Filtered have been sort of pumping me up, and I, I, I genuinely appreciate what they're doing. Um, if you like listening to podcasts, go get them. They do some great uh, tasting notes. They do some great history. They've got some news going on. And just a real casual conversation, and they're genuine human beings. They're they're not a persona. I've had an opportunity to join them for an episode. Um, hopefully, I'll have them joining me potentially. You know, next month. I guess it's this month now since we're in December, uh, or um, you know, in January sometime they'll come on and, and we'll have a chat because they're you know they're they're real human beings. I've um, spent a lot of time trying to kind of go over. And think about what it means to have a successful podcasting platform, YouTube platform, whatever it is. And it's not, to me, it's not based off of the numbers of followers that I have. It's not even really based off of the engagement. It's based off of whether I am projecting a unique unique and realistic version of who I am instead of some persona. Um, I spent a little bit of time this week 
I have a particular app that I use that helps me to understand who follows me on Instagram, who unfollows me, people that I don't follow that do follow me and vice versa to, to make sure that you know if someone is giving me a follow, I'm reciprocating that. And what I've noticed over the last couple of weeks is that a lot of <clears throat> personalities that you'll find on social media, whether it be Twitter or Instagram or YouTube or wherever, um, there, there's this there's this fun trick that you can do. You can go out and um, a lot of people have this idea of a follow for a follower, a like for a like. And so if you come if you come follow me, I'll follow you back. Um, and, and those folks are exploiting that. They'll they'll hop out, they'll follow someone on Instagram, and once they get the follow back, two, three, five days later, they'll unfollow. And so now they're able to get um, their numbers into a their their follow numbers into a unique. Uh, unique place. Sorry, I'm getting some messages from back home. Um, they want you want to have more followers than you follow. You don't want to be inverted where you have 200 followers and you follow 2,000 accounts. And so what they're doing is they're using this follow for follow mentality to pump their numbers up and 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 get them inverted. And then. You find this other situation where, you know, I could go out onto a handful of different websites right now and buy followers. I could buy a thousand followers for like ninety-nine cents. And I could pump my numbers up real quick that way as well. Um and, and I'm saying all of this to say, you know, like, what does success look like here? It, it, it's not based off of those types of numbers. It's not based off of any of those things. It's you know, am I giving you a genuine version of myself and, and the people that I want to talk about and the people that I want to promote, I think are people that do those same things. So the same thing with these um, whiskey brands that I want to will want to look at. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to shy away from those that seem a little bit fake or that they are legitimately doing this just for notoriety. Um, at the end of the day, I, I have 19 subscribers on YouTube and I probably have... 10 to 20 people that regularly download every episode uh, on the podcasting platform. And that's a huge measure of success for me. I have effectively 30 people that are interested in what I have to say. And I'll take 30 engaged people over um, 10,000 unengaged folks. So um, that was a long way to say that. You know, like I said, the, the guys over at Chill Filtered have been a huge supporter of me. Go support them as well if you do follow this. I assume if you got here, you probably came from them, so you're already doing that, and I appreciate that greatly. Um, I can be also found at you know, embellishpod.com. Uh, all of my links are there, accounts, contact details, whatever. Um, I'll, be, I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. I think it's probably going to be... Uh, discussion around what the repeal day expo was like this year and comparing it to last year. Um, and then the week after that, I think I'm going to start targeting, I'm going to target uh, American single malt whiskey because we've got some news that's coming along, or at least from what I understand, there's a potential for a um, standardization or standards, standards definition for American single malt whiskey coming in the month of December. And that's something to celebrate is, is, Single malt whiskey, I think, is going to be a growing segment in the United States, and um, the more attention we can give it, the better. The more people that are buying it, the better, because there's going to be more people entering the market doing unique things, um, and there's some really good brands that are out there creating single malts, and so we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the news that it is the uh, of of where that um, that piece of I don't want to say legislation, I guess that that standardization from the TTB folks. 
whether that gets passed or not, whether they pull all the teeth out of it or not. You know, it's it's sort of like the Indiana rye thing that was passed. The There's not a whole lot of teeth to it. It's a thing that you can put on a label now, but you don't have to do a whole lot to be able to meet that standard. And so uh, maybe it'll be good, maybe it'll be bad, but we still know there's a, there's a handful of companies that we can continue to talk about that make great American single malt whiskeys. 